0: Alright, so this one's gonna be weird. Like, I'm pretty sure at this point if you've listened to my lecture series whatsoever, either as my student in my general humanities class, or as an affectionate listener online, you're probably used to me largely shooting from the hip and mostly just kind of casually talking about whatever crazy intellectual thing that I'm discussing at the moment. Uh, But this one's gonna be even more fuzzy and messy than usual. Like, The assignment in my General Humanities class that I kind of wanted to end the semester with, now that we have moved on into the late 20th century, um, was to watch a James Bond movie. Like, any James Bond movie. Uh, I recommend Doctor No, that's probably the strongest in the franchise as far as representing the series and talking about what I want to talk about here. Um, I would recommend avoiding the careers of either Daniel Craig on the one hand, not because they're bad movies, but because it's kind of not exactly the same sort of James Bond outlook franchise thing that we're seeing elsewhere. Um, and also Timothy Dalton, like he's... Fine, I guess, but the whole '80s Bond thing is weird and sort of out of sync with the the Cold War stuff that I I really want to talk about here. Um, but anything else really is fine. Like Sean Connery movies are sort of the the um, gold standard, the the kind of like uh, ideal form of James Bond movies. Uh, Roger Moore is fine. Like they're more cheaply made and and less well written in most cases. Um, But, you know, they all capture that that sort of ethos that I'm trying to find here. And as much as Pierce Brosnan and his run-in as the the title character kind of takes place after the Cold War, they're still very much informed by the Cold War. Like, even though Die Another Day is kind of famously bad, even it is still sort of in that Cold War paranoia mentality. Um, And Goldeneye, honestly, is kind of one of the best Bond movies and kind of hits all of the key points on the head, so I really don't want to sort of, like, throw Pierce Brosnan out. Um... But that's the assignment. Like, watch any James Bond movie. I realize that I can't very well, like, assign something like this because on the one hand, I could, like, make Doctor No the DVD like a required text for the class, but then I run into the, but none of my students have a DVD player. Um, I assume that all of my students have access to some streaming service, like probably Netflix, maybe Hulu, maybe some of the other more esoteric ones. Um, And honestly, like, I'm talking right now in January of 2024 and I know for a fact that by the time that the assignment becomes due in April that like half of the James Bond movies will have probably migrated from one streaming service to another. Um, I have not done my research on this one and I don't care to because the world is too complicated and as a deep and abiding lover of physical media I I feel like we have all taken a horrible misstep in expecting, you know, these services to provide these experiences for us without any qualifications. All this to say, the assignment is watch any dang James Bond movie you can find, um, with the sort of caveats and and restrictions and suggestions that I've made above. So, why is kind of the next follow-up question, like... What exactly is the purpose of me assigning, hey, go watch a James Bond movie as sort of the big final assignment for for my General Humanities class? Um, There are a couple reasons here. First, there's the pedagogical reasons. Like, it's gonna be April 27th when this thing comes due, um, at least the way that I've scheduled it now. And even if I do, you know, maintain this in, in future semesters, it's gonna come at the end of the semester, which means it's going to be an assignment. That is like right before finals week in a class that is kind of famously difficult and where the students are usually pretty thoroughly checked out by this point of the semester. And my usual habit in the past was to just kind of keep talking about Bulgakov even long after my students had kind of like stopped reading Bulgakov, Um, which always felt to me like, you know, it was just disappointing, like the entire class was ending with a wet fart or something. Um... To end with a James Bond movie, on the one hand, we're still not out of wet fart territory, but at least on this one, we can kind of have fun with the wet fart. Like, James Bond is a dumb, stupid franchise, and my guess is that virtually all of my students will have at least heard of it at this point. So having a kind of fun, low-stakes reading assignment that is honestly kind of exactly what you need in finals week, like, okay, it's the most stressful part of the semester, now you are literally required to, like, go hang out, make popcorn, and watch a dumb movie for two hours, seems to me like the right move here. Like, I literally literally told my wife about it, and she's like, that is the best idea ever, and I'm like, I disagree, but nonetheless, I think that it is the right move. Um... Plus, like, from a less pedagogical standpoint, like, more of the, okay, so why is this relevant to our class standpoint, I seriously can't think of a work of art that has more relevance to the Cold War era and more sort of popular cultural weight, which is kind of what I want to talk about here in this, like, late 20th century discussion than James Bond. Like, seriously, think about it. This is a franchise that started in the 1960s very much about the Cold War, like, as being this sort of narrative about spies and, and, like, espionage and, you know, Cold War paranoia and all of that stuff, and it has consistently run throughout the entire late 20th century. Like, it's got All of these crazy entries, only ever beaten by the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, you know, is only because it's releasing, like, four movies a year for, you know, a decade, where James Bond was releasing, like, one movie every several years, maybe, depending on what decade it is. Um, James Bond is just crazy relevant to our discussion. Like, it is, in fact, a long-running cultural, like, artifact that represents all of the ideas that I want to get across, both on the fronts of, hey, let's talk about Cold War paranoia, historical circumstances, and also on the, hey, let's talk about mass media, pop culture, and how it relates to art. And also, I really do consider this to be an extension of the Don Juan myth that we've been talking about this entire class. So, this is just so freaking perfect. Like, why wouldn't I talk about James Bond? Why isn't how could you justify this not being relevant to our discussion it is a perfect encapsulation of the historical moment it is a great work of art both in the sense of being culturally like ubiquitous and influential as well as actually having these like deep and meaningful themes relevant to the issues that we're talking about in this class even though and i should stress this is not a smart movie franchise like many of the entries are straight up dumb if not outright offensive like i apologize in advance if you sort of blindly walked into the i am going to watch a james bond movie assignment and somehow ended up watching you only live twice or live and let die both of which are pretty damn racist um And they honestly, like, yes, those are the worst offenders, almost certainly, but there are plenty of sort of instances of casual racism across the franchise. Uh, But again, representative, what are you going to do? This franchise just makes sense at the end of this class. Like, it fits all of, it checks all the boxes. It fits all of my needs. It does everything that I want to do. Um, And for that matter, weirdly enough, it does it consistently, Like, I can say comfortably, go watch any James Bond movie, and on the one hand, I can expect my students to come up with a pretty wide variety of options, which makes for good discussion, like, okay, so you watched Moonraker, and you watched, you know, Octopussy, and you watched Goldfinger, and you watched Dr. No, let's talk about what you found in each of these movies, let's compare some notes, see what's consistent, see what's different. Like, as much as this is a franchise that has changed and metamorphosed over decades, it is, at root, always the same. Um, Now, one of the other reasons why I picked the James Bond franchise is because I'm weirdly knowledgeable about the James Bond franchise, he says carefully... Um, like, I haven't watched every single movie, and I am not, like, a scholar of James Bond by any extent of the imagination. Like, it was a, a fixture of my childhood. I would watch, like, 16 Days of 007, back when that was, like, a thing that happened on TBS on cable on a fairly regular basis. Um, and I have, you know, affectionately rewatched many of the movies since. Like, we used to have, back when I was living in Boston, a sort of traditional once-a-week night where we would, like, just pick a stupid James Bond movie and watch it. Um, But also, and I should stress this, um, like, one of the things that I definitely did in my my seminary years is that was also the same time that film critic Hulk was releasing his literal novel-length critique of every single James Bond movie ever made up to that point, which included basically, I think, Quantum of Solace was the most recent that had come out. Like, this hugely scholarly, but also, you know, in that very film critic Hulk way, kind of, like, affectionate and also, you know, silly and, like, popular and, and kind of, you know, like, irreverent in its own way. Um, which, by the way, doesn't exist anymore. Like, I definitely tried to look it up in order to, to discuss it for this lecture and because i wanted to you know at least have it available yeah it doesn't exist anymore it was definitely published on birth movies death which doesn't exist anymore um like i believe that hulk either has his his like earlier drafts um from from like a an earlier watch that that are posted on his his own blog um, I almost reached out to him about it, but again, my cowardice always gets the better of me on this front. Um, as far as I know, it's, it's just vanished off the face of the earth. Like, it is, in fact, a thing. I assume that he, in fact, has it somewhere, um, and hopefully one day he will reintroduce it to the world because it was just delightful. Um, the article was, if I recall, called something along the lines of, like, James Bond gazing into the id of a boner incarnate. And that was kind of his whole thing was that, like, James Bond represents some kind of ideal, some warped ideal of 20th century masculinity, um, that it is one of the most indulgent movie franchises in the history of movie franchises, insofar as James Bond, like, is the perfect man he is suave sophisticated strong manly he always gets the girl he kills without you know any repercussions or consequence he goes to exotic locales and does everything you wish you could do um like james bond exists as a male fantasy figure and has been successful because it caters so well to that fantasy And although that fantasy has shifted as time has gone on, like, this is almost certainly a 1960s fantasy that sort of extended through the 70s and beyond, it has been subject to change. Like, again, in the 80s especially, uh, the reason why I sort of, like, warn my students away from Timothy Dalton is because Dalton was sort of trying to tap into the the kind of dirty, hairy, anti-hero tendencies of 1980s indulgent male power fantasies, which were very much at odds. With James Bond and his character. Um, But the way that Sean Connery presents the character, the way that Roger Moore presents the character, the way that Pierce Brosnan presents the character, you know, through the 60s, 70s, and 90s, is consistent with that Don Juan-esque, I go around, I do what I want, I am a radical individualist, I sleep with the ladies, I have no consequences, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, all is well. Um, Which we'll circle back around to, importantly. Um, So, on the one hand, like, I'm going to be borrowing a lot of Hulk's ideas. Like, I'm going to be definitely cribbing notes from this article that does not exist. um, And that I can't properly cite. Um, This is me largely just dredging it up from memory. Because I'm pretty sure I definitely read that whole, like, giant 100,000 word thing. Like, at least twice in seminary. uh, Largely to, you know survive the overwhelming, aggressive seminary reading that I had to deal with on a regular basis. Um, But, like, obviously I can't point you towards the article, because, like I said, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, What I do want to get at, though, is kind of a combination of all of this. I want to sort of, in this lecture, insofar as I have a plan, um, I want to talk about James Bond's legacy and why it ties into our class, and how it's relevant, and to basically give James Bond the same treatment we gave to all the Don Juan and Faust myths leading up to this point. Um, So with that in mind, like, sheer basics here, um, like, obviously James Bond is first and foremost a spy. Like, that's his whole thing. Um, He is a spy, he works for MI6, uh, he is, you know, that clandestine secret agent, but of course, importantly, he is working for the good of you know, freedom and democracy and capitalism. He is frequently found working against the forces of communism. This is not necessarily consistent across all the movies. The Russians are not always the bad guys. And in fact, it's significant to note that James Bond usually is fighting, not like actual Russian operatives, like he will bump into KGB officers from time to time. They will, in fact, have shootouts from time to time. Um, But more often than not, he's fighting against like weird megalomaniacs who have just like built fortresses on deserted islands or or like in the deep jungle or in like a volcano in the case of Blofeld you only live twice um like he is sort of an independent operative given a great deal of latitude to solve problems the way he sees fit in order to stop Other crazed, you know, maniacs who are in fact like separate from nations or national identity or allegiances who are essentially doing the same thing but for evil. James Bond is saving the world from bad guys who want to destroy it, in short. Um, But what I want to stress is, even if he's not fighting the commies, even if, weirdly enough, James Bond's legacy is actually more cooperative than anything, like think of From Russia With Love or even Goldeneye, where he's, you know, working with KGB agents, where he's working with Russian operatives, where this sort of collaboration between the two sides is in fact a key part of the the plot or the way that the story is organized, Um, we should emphasize that James Bond dwells in this world. The Cold War world. Like, if anything, the reason why I suggest we don't watch Daniel Craig James Bond movies, even though they do essentially get at the key ideas, is because Daniel Craig's Bond kind of doesn't live in that world anymore. Um, there aren't these titanic global opponents getting ready to fight each other, um, and James Bond is like keeping the world from, you know, nuclear annihilation or mutual destruction or whatever the case may be. Um, like I said, even in the Pierce Brosnan era, as much as that's supposedly after the Cold War, you'll know that that fundamental dynamic is usually there. Um, in the Goldeneye, it's very much sort of about the fall of the the Cold War era. Like, James Bond is still collaborating with Mishkin of the KGB. Um, The threat is, again, from inside. It's old Trevelyan who can't give up the old Cold War ethos and and mentality. Um, But the Cold War is still hanging over the whole movie. That is still the world that James Bond operates in. Even something like Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough... Both of them still operate under Cold War assumptions, that same Cold War paranoia. Tomorrow Never Dies is literally about stopping a war between America and China. So, again, it's the same kind of paranoia, it's the same here are these people working in the shadows for global peace and prosperity against nefarious villains who are, you know, exploiting the world's blind spots and international, you know, nooks and crannies to their own advantage. Um, At the end of the day, this Cold War attitude, this... The world is about to destroy itself, is about to tear itself apart, um, and we need these heroic beings who are sort of let free from morality and from rationality in order to do what the tough job that needs to be done and keep these nations from crashing into each other. Like, this is James Bond's whole thing, his whole position. And as much as, again, Daniel Craig is kind of great in the role, he's great in spite of the fact that that's not the way the world works. And so much about the Craig era is kind of like him, uh, the directors and writers trying to figure out how to make that still make sense, like make James Bond's existence still logical and meaningful in some sense. Um, but that, again, is the setup. Here is James Bond, a spy working for a nation that is, on the one hand, aligned with American interests, but at the same time not actually a member of American interests. Like, James Bond frequently finds himself working with the CIA, but I think it's noteworthy and significant that he isn't a CIA agent. Um, I think that this is deliberate. Like, this is part of what makes him work, is the fact that he isn't being paid for by the Americans. The, as much as he is like a, like a rigorously British dude, um, like his whole affectation, his whole attitude, like as much as this is a weird sort of dynamic between American and British producers, James Bond is like at the root of his identity, a British dude. And the Brits, the way that they are portrayed in the typical James Bond movies are usually outsiders with a kind of moral neutrality. Like, it is usually presented in a James Bond movie that while the Americans are in the right, like they are fighting for justice and they are fighting for freedom, the fact is that they are kind of stuck in their own perspective, stuck in their own habits. Um, so when James Bond cooperates with Americans, he's usually doing it on American soil, like in Goldfinger, where he's trying to thwart Goldfinger's, you know, plot to to steal all the gold from Fort Knox or to rather irradiate it as it is revealed. Um, then he's clearly working with CIA agents because again, Goldfinger is working on American turf and an American war. But notice that the threat is to the American economy. The threat is that if Goldfinger succeeds in destroying the American gold reserves, that this will you know, jeopardize the Americans' ability to fight the Soviets, fight the communists, and consequently they will stop functioning as the stopgap for nuclear annihilation. James Bond, by saving America, is saving the world, is the way that it's usually framed. Likewise, when the Russians do show up, they're usually presented as a kind of unthinking threat. Like they're this giant enemy that, that, you know, is is like too bureaucratic to to operate and to stop these sort of mechanistic processes from taking place. James Bond will interact with the Russians usually to keep them from doing something self-destructive or evil or that would in fact destroy the world. James Bond has to save America James Bond has to save the Soviets from themselves. That's a huge distinction, the way that it is usually framed here. Um, again, like it varies from movie to movie. I'm not trying to like comprehensively discuss the entire James Bond franchise. If we are pointing to movies that I'm most familiar with, it's probably going to be the likes of Goldfinger or some of the Pierce Brosnan era stuff like Goldeneye. Um, but again, it's not the, the specifics that I want to get at here. It's the big picture stuff. Um so with that in mind the other thing that I kind of want to address besides this whole cold war paranoia business like the okay so james bond is so much a product of his time and his time is like the whole setting of these movies the whole conflict of these movies very much clearly reveals the whole cold war paranoia the you know spies being the operatives who are changing the the fate of nations and again you know just as we talked about proxy wars in the the late 20th century lecture we should note that james bond definitely mixes it up in his fair share of proxy wars um Like, they are usually not framed as proxy wars. We're not seeing, like, James Bond boots on the ground in Vietnam. But we are seeing James Bond, like, mucking about in South American countries or, you know, hanging around in Japan or hanging around in other Asian countries who are supposedly neutral or aligned one way or the other in the Cold War. You know, making sure that they do not fall to either like global communism or alternatively the nefarious schemes of whatever villainous mastermind um, is pulling the strings in these cases, whether Blofeld or Dr. No or whoever. Um, But that kind of brings us to the second thing that I very much want to stress about James Bond as a pop culture artifact, and that is the fact that it is very much an international franchise. Like it is, like I emphasized, distinct and important that James Bond is not an American but aligned with America, that he is British and therefore sort of mucking about in other countries' affairs to some sort of dubious moral good. Um, it is noteworthy, though, that James Bond, in order to accomplish these tasks, is dispatched everywhere. Um, And these movies are usually an excuse to stick James Bond into exotic countries or places to hobnob with the rich, but also to, like, hang around in deep jungles or deserts or, you know, anywhere in the world that James Bond could conceivably find himself Um, These movies are honestly kind of famous for, on the one hand, the practical action shots, like James Bond doing awesome stuff, like jumping from crane to crane or driving cars in crazy ways, like the one stunt from Live and Let Die, I think, where the car like, or no, it's The Man with the Golden Gun, where the car like flips, like does an entire 360 degree, like, lateral flip before landing on the other bridge is one of the most crazy stunts in the entire history of cinema, um, even though they put the goddamn slide whistle over it. Um, This is one of the major draws of James Bond, that he's doing all of these cool things, but the other important detail is that he's doing them in cool places. He is frequently hanging out in, like, old European cities, or he is frequently hanging out in, like, fancy European nightclubs. Like, he is not the the guy who goes to the rave and the thumping bass music, which has become such a feature of especially, like, post-90s action movies, post-Matrix action movies especially, but he is very much, like, he is going to go to this fancy soiree at this, like, multi-millionaire's house, and he is going to, like, live it up with people who are all dressed in tuxes and evening dresses um that's the kind of world that james bond operates in and very much as in a sense this is emphasizing his wealth as well like james bond doesn't seem rich though it seems like he never has to worry about money his expense account is truly wonderful Um, But nonetheless, the world that he operates in is the world we want to be in. It is the world of all of these rich nobles, and very much an old world in that sense. Like, as much as, again... James Bond is very much a pop culture creation of the 1960s and beyond. It is very easy to draw a line from the sort of noble origins of of, uh, Don Juan myths as we usually see it, whether in, you know, like the actual original Spanish culture or, you know, further down the line in something like Moliere or beyond. And to see that there is like a legacy that continues there, that that aristocracy that Don Juan hails from is still alive and well in James Bond movies, even if it isn't terribly alive and well in the era that produced James Bond movies, Um, which is itself kind of fascinating when you think about it, like... The aristocracy, the, the, you know, all these rich nobles and these former kings and princes and stuff who are all usually presented in James Bond movies as being, you know, sexy and, you know, awesome and perfectly chiseled and, like, they're all usually, like, very attractive, very interesting, very cool, very exciting people, even if they're evil, even if they're, like, doing something rotten. Like, there are exceptions to this. Again, or-, or Goldfinger is kind of perfect as this, like, schlubby dude who, you know, you just kind of love to hate. Um, And it is also typical of James Bond movies that, like, at least one of the major henchmen has some kind of physical deformity, ever since Oddjob, apparently. Um, Nonetheless, like, most of the people that James Bond hangs out with are really cool, really attractive, really wealthy, and coming, in many cases, from old money, or at least hanging around where old money tends to dwell. Um, This is not a 100%, like, truism... Like, obviously, especially in more modern James Bond movies, you'll find James Bond hanging out with, like, Asian aristocracy, um, or, you know, like, the equivalent, I want to say. You will find James Bond hanging out in worlds well beyond this. One of the things that is characteristic of him is that he is comfortable in all of these settings. That on the one hand he can go to a cocktail party with all of the rich richest most wealthy and socialites in Europe and then be found like getting drunk at some kind of, you know, like poolside like bar at in some, you know, distant foreign country in either South Asia or Africa or the Caribbean somewhere and he is equally at home in both places. Um, He is a man of the world, in a sense. And I want to stress that. Like I said, James Bond is an international franchise. It is about a world that has become increasingly globalized. Um, And while globalization is a process we usually talk about in connection with the 90s and sort of the end of the Cold War, we need to stress that like in the 1960s, the, the beginnings of this are already being felt like there are in fact important you know like important consumers abroad for hollywood cinema um, there is, in fact, a, a push throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s to get more and more nations, more and more people invested in the James Bond franchise. And you should also note, like, as much as I'm stressing, hey, this is about Cold War paranoia, hey, this presents the Americans as the heroes, hey, this has an international audience, if you're reading this as, oh, so James Bond is also pop culture propaganda, well, yeah, yeah in a sense like I don't think that was necessarily the intention but it's certainly there in the back of everybody's minds like you can't imagine it, it's pretty easy to imagine the CIA being like yep there's nothing wrong here but keep up the good work like keep trying to tell everybody how awesome America is and keep presenting the Soviets as either dubious villains or you know harborers of of like nefarious megalomaniacs everything is okay here um Like, this definitely has that same sort of pop culture power, that propagandistic kind of power, that more subtle, soft power sort of propaganda that we see with the likes of Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, even when they're doing something more, like, obviously propagandistic. Um, Again, when we talk about propaganda in the 20th century, especially propaganda from the American side, we need to recognize that propaganda is subtler than we tend to see in, you know, the big posters that were put up during World War II. Um, It isn't nearly as obvious, and the propaganda isn't necessarily even government funded. It is more complicated than that. You know, We've been talking throughout this entire semester about various works of art that communicate certain moral views, certain moral attitudes, that convey the idea that either Christian values are worthwhile or that they are bankrupt, that the devil is someone that you should fear and watch out for, that he is someone who is essentially harmless and who you can essentially beat with a little bit of American ingenuity. These ideas have powerful effects, even if they don't seem to be outright propaganda. Um, You can't necessarily read Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus as being Christian propaganda. That's not what it's there for, though it is certainly communicating and reinforcing certain Christian ideals, certain Protestant ideals in particular. Likewise, Dostoevsky is probably not intentionally doing propaganda when he writes his scene with Ivan and the Devil in The Brothers Karamazov, but it doesn't change the fact that he is getting across a certain idea of how Christianity works, how decent human behavior works, how intellectualism is at the end of the day fundamentally damaging and problematic. Dostoevsky has a political agenda, which is aligned with what might be propaganda for some people at this particular time. Likewise, James Bond isn't necessarily propaganda in the sense that it is government-funded media trying to convert hearts and minds, but James Bond doesn't have to be that in order to change people's hearts and minds. The fact that you are relentlessly exposed to a literature or art that espouses capitalist values up over against communist values is enough. That's all it takes. The creators of James Bond were, at the end of the day, convinced that capitalism was a superior form of government and social organization to communism. And for that matter, the creators of James Bond had a certain amount of you know, British elitism and xenophobia. Like, Ian Fleming, uh, the writer of most of the James Bond novels, was kind of straight-up racist and was pretty xenophobic, and there are many occasions in the actual James Bond novels where they're actually way more racist than the stuff that you find in the movie versions or movie adaptations. Um, It's kind of messy, like... On the one hand, I don't want to dwell on the whole racism in the 1960s thing because I feel like other people have done that much more effectively. Um, And if you really are interested in this, then maybe don't come and ask me about it in a general humanities class. On the other hand, I do want to stress that this is a thing. Like, xenophobia and racism has been kind of littered through a lot of our readings, but it never really hits as hard as it does when we see it up close. When it's relatively near our own perspectives um like honestly james bond level racism is nothing compared to what's going on in germany in the 19th century and i want to stress that germany in the 19th century like 70 80 years before hitler and the nazis like we're seeing some majorly racist attitudes and they are just straight up commonplace at this point um like forget anti-semitism like that was a huge deal sure but like anti-catholicism and anti- you know, like, the basic nationalism that virtually every 19th century writer had, whether it's George Bernard Shaw and his sort of, like, we-need-to-raise-up-the-Superman kind of outlook, or if it's Dostoevsky talking about Russians saving the world from one another, or Nietzsche and Beyond Good and Evil talking about, like, the, the heritage of the Germans and how they're superior to the British or the French. Like, this is just so normal in the 19th century that it's kind of embarrassing to look back, but we aren't threatened by it. The way that we are when we come to a movie from the 1960s and we're like wow this is really close to our own experience oh my gosh why is he being so racist um on some level I want to stress that a lot of the things that rankle us about these movies are because they are so close to our own perspectives rather than so far from them um I am not an expert on this stuff I am definitely not a historian of racism what I do want to stress though is that along with that xenophobia, that paranoia about the Cold War, that us-versus-them mentality, which on the one hand is, you know, bad, because, like, communists are people too, and probably we don't want to go to war with the Russians and stoking those sorts of controversies like McCarthy did in the 50s, will, at the end of the day, cause more social harm than good. On the other hand, I want to stress that this is something that bleeds beyond just the sort of us versus them mentality of the cold war it is about fear like james bond's whole world the whole you know us versus them soviets versus capitalists like attitude as much as you know it is supposed to be limited to like we want to protect capitalism from communism or vice versa um we should recognize that this involves a certain kind of isol- isolationist stance we kind of have to go into the james bond movies assuming the basic moral rightness of what james bond is doing that his you know british like capitalism adjacent american adjacent outlook is at the end of the day the right way to be because he's going to kill a lot of people over the course of this movie and he's going to like you know do some pretty some stuff that we would consider really bad in other circumstances if it wasn't for this assumption. James Bond is given a license to kill. This is shocking if you, you know, haven't watched a zillion James Bond movies at this point. The idea that a government has given James Bond the right to indiscriminately kill whoever he sees fit is remarkable. Um, and I suspect that in ages to come that will in fact shock us. But that same assumption, that James Bond's license to kill is warranted, justified in this dark and dangerous age, extends to, and if you do not agree with us, then James Bond has the right to kill you. It extends to a more basic xenophobia, a more basic racism on some level. Like, we usually don't think of communism versus capitalism as being racism, but really... The two are not terribly far removed. It is not a hard jump to go from, you know, our capitalist society is superior to your communist society, to our, you know, American values are superior to your Russian values, to Americans are better than Russians. Like, that's not a hard jump. That's not a terribly slippery slope as these things go. So, and on the other hand, we should stress, like, that racism, as much as we have talked about a little bit in the lecture, like, I didn't get too deep into the civil rights movement, as much as it was a major part of American culture, there was just so much to talk about in the late 20th century, Um, like... What I want to stress about the whole racism attitude or racism situation is that, on the one hand, it was fairly commonplace, to the point of being uncomfortable to contemporary audiences. You watch Live and Let Die, there's a whole lot of racism going on, and it is super uncomfortable to watch. Part of the reason why that continued to be a thing in the 1960s and into the 1970s is because the CIA was very much downplaying it you know kind of going out of their way to quash the voices of people like James Baldwin um or Ralph Ellison or uh, I'm trying to think of the the uh, is it Haley who wrote Roots I want to say um multiple black writers multiple black artists multiple black voices had been silenced like never mind the the fact that like there are no black directors in Hollywood in in the 1960s and like Sidney Poitier is going to take a few years before he actually becomes significant enough to you know start really affecting the way that Hollywood works um and you know multiple other black institutions like the black exploitation movement are in the future as well and also sort of removed from Hollywood's more white bread fare it's Again, I'm not a Hollywood historian, I just roughly know that these things exist. What I want to stress is that there was plenty of room for racism in the 1960s in Hollywood, and I think it makes us uncomfortable to think about that specifically because we like to think that Hollywood was better than that, that Hollywood was a voice for you know minorities and liberals, and largely because we like to think about it being that today. It's not. It's better than it was 70 years ago, but not by that terribly much. Um, At any rate, what I want to stress is that James Bond's xenophobia lends itself to racism pretty neatly. The entire idea that James Bond has the right to kill people who get in his way is kinda racist when you combine that with James Bond can go wherever he wants in the world and do whatever he wants when he gets there. If you read James Bond as an imperialist or a colonialist, it can get super ugly super fast and not just the obviously racist parts. The whole thing starts to look super racist. But again, this is indicative of how the world worked in the 1960s and the 1970s. Remember like we talked about in the lecture series. America and Russia both felt sort of privileged, I say carefully. Like, it was their right to go into these places and mess with their governments in order to preserve the safety of capitalism, communism, whatever. Like, nobody gave a crap about what the Vietnamese wanted during the Vietnam War. Like, the people on the ground, the people who were in Vietnam before the American troops arrived, before the Chinese agents started crossing the border, they probably didn't have a horse in this race. And at the very least, most of the strong radicals, the intellectuals who were in fact arguing for communism or were, for that matter, arguing against it, probably didn't want a whole bunch of other people coming in and telling them what to do. And yet, America felt... Like this was not just their right, but their obligation. They swept in convinced that they were saving the Vietnam Vietnamese, when in fact the relationship was far more complicated than this. And notice that that mirrors exactly what James Bond is doing in the world as well. Nobody asks James Bond to come to whatever exotic place that he has come to, especially when he's wandering abroad in foreign countries, outside of the European milieu, outside of America, etc. When he is wandering around in Japan and you only live twice, or wandering around in the jungle in Dr. No, he is not terribly well invited. Sometimes the movies will take the effort to justify his presence, like so-and-so, you know, diplomatically requested assistance, or, you know, this guy is, like taking up residence and the the nation is upset about it and we are helping out whether they want us to or not um whatever fig leaf of justification we have for james bond going wherever he darn well pleases and doing whatever he wants we should note that this reflects that cold war mentality that we are americans we know what's best we are protecting ourselves by mucking about in other people's elections by mucking about with other people's governments by mucking about with other people's livelihoods James Bond's license to kill is metaphorically kind of on par with the CIA just randomly going into various nations and doing whatever they see fit in order to stop the spread of communism and preserve the freedom of capitalism at any cost. That's really screwed up when you think about it. But it also ties right back into that power fantasy. Again, if James Bond has been so successful with popular audiences for so long, it's because James Bond gets to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and there are no repercussions for it. In fact, he's saving the world. Everything is good at the end. Like, the world is a better place, unequivocally, at virtually the end of every James Bond movie, at least until some of the more modern incarnations. This kind of ties into... That indulgent, we are America, we do what we want, we get away with everything, we know what's right for you, that is very much the foundation of the CIA going around and doing these things. James Bond is given his license to kill, his license to have sex, his license to do whatever he wants, which we want, which we wish we had, which we feel like we should have in some way. And there is, to some degree, like some discussion even within the James Bond movies, like as much as these are incredibly indulgent movies and fantasies of a kind of like ugly sort in many ways, I do want to stress that some of the directors, some of the writers in the James Bond franchise are more conscious of this than others. Um, Phil Kernicalk loves as his kind of like litmus test for you know what is our attitude towards James Bond? Like what is what is the writer's perspective on James Bond's juvenile or adolescent sort of power fantasy mechanics? Um he always says, look at money penny, um, uh, because that will always give you the the like attitude of the director. Moneypenny is like the secretary in the MI six office, and she has this delightful banter, bantering relationship with James Bond in almost all of the movies. And at her best, Money Penny consistently overcomes James Bond. She she is smarter than he is. She always says like the right thing to put him in his place. In some sense, um, you can find this in Doctor No. You can find this in some of the later sort of incarnations of Money Penny. Um, But, like, even during the Roger Moore era, there are some really great money-penny lines where she just reminds everyone that James Bond is, at the end of the day, like a 13-year-old boy, you know, killing and screwing his way to success without anyone ever telling him no, and that this is kind of a problem. Um, Like, as much as we want James Bond to be suave and sophisticated, we need the reminder that this isn't necessarily good behavior in everyday life. Um, some directors get that and give Money Penny the good lines. Some directors don't get that, and Money Penny gets to just basically be in love with James Bond, which is not good at all in most cases, especially in Film Critic Hulk's perspective. Um, but I also want to look at this in terms of the Don Juan archetype. Like, when we've talked about Don Juan in this class, the basic myth that we have explored from, you know, we haven't looked at the Terso play, but even as far back as Moliere, the idea is here is this guy who, utterly without any regard for the consequences of his actions, is screwing whatever women he comes into contact with, like promising them whatever he needs to in order to get in their pants... Largely because, as you know, Mo- as Mozart's version puts it, or as Molière puts it, you know, it's the it's the thrill of the chase that drives Don Juan. Like he is not interested in settling down and having a family the way that it's usually understood that these relationships are supposed to work, um, and what usually the woman is counting on in these cases. But rather, rather it is the thrill of the conquest. Like Don Juan, in many cases, is portrayed as truly being in love with the women he conquers. Um, But importantly, he never sticks around. Like, once he gets what he wants, once he has accomplished his task, once he has taken advantage of them, he is off to the next woman, off to the next conquest, off to the next, you know, challenge. Um, But notice that for Moliere, even though Moliere doesn't seem to have his heart in it, um, for Mozart, who really does seem to have his heart in it, um, Don Juan is usually punished for this. Like, in all of the original forms of this myth, from the Terso play to Moliere to Mozart, like, virtually up until the end of the 18th century, Don Juan is constantly a myth about this character who then comes to a bad end. Like, the statue of the Commendatore um, who he kills in a duel comes back and drags him to hell. Like, as much as this seems perfunctory in the Moliere play, as much as this is a big deal in the Mozart uh, Mozart opera, we see that this is fairly consistent. This is apparently a necessary part of the myth. Something that kind of gets jettisoned with Byron because Byron flips the entire script. Something that gets very much questioned and played with in the likes of Shaw's Man and Superman. But at the end of the day, there is still that lingering sense that there are consequences to these actions. That if you do, in fact, just do whatever you want, kill whoever you want, fight duels with whoever you want, sleep with whoever you want, you know, take advantage of women, even rape them the way that, they're, that Don Juan is sometimes portrayed, like, especially in Mozart, at the end of the day, there is a comeuppance. You do get punished for your actions. But it's noteworthy that with James Bond, there is no comeuppance. Like, ever. Like, maybe a little bit here and there in some of the more sophisticated movies. Like, I think there's a bit of a comeuppance uh, from Russia with Love. Like, Goldeneye has the sort of implicit comeuppance in the fact that Trevelyan betrays him and uh, Natalia is, like, not as interested in James Bond initially. Um, With Daniel Craig, you get the actual comeuppance of, like, the girl who James Bond actually falls in love with, both betrays him and also dies. Like which is, again, part of the reason why I'm like, and don't watch the Daniel Craig movies, that's, you know, relevant to our discussion, but not in the way that I necessarily want to talk about it. More often than not, throughout the Sean Connery era, throughout the Roger Moore era, throughout the Pierce Brosnan era, throughout the Timothy Dalton era, James Bond kills and screws, and there are no consequences. If anything, it just makes the world better. Like, Film Critic Hulk frequently talks about James Bond's magic penis, because he has the power to convert women who are working for the enemy to his allies. As is the case with the extremely poorly named Pussy Galore in Goldfinger. Who is working for Auric Goldfinger and is clearly you know, helping Goldfinger destroy the world. Until James Bond sleeps with her and now she's working for him as a double agent. Because of the power of James Bond's magic dick. Um, this is such a huge deviation from the Don Juan myth, the Don Juan story, that I can't help but dwell on this. Like, we've talked quite a bit about the way that the Faust trope has changed in the 20th century. Like, I made a big point of talking about how Stephen Vincent Benet has his whole, like, Daniel Devil and Daniel Webster thing come out where there's, like, no negative consequences for, you know, Daniel Webster or for the guy he's representing. That The devil is, like, thoroughly beaten. Um, he is just 100% outmatched. And this is, again, consistent with the way that most 20th century, especially most 20th century American portrayals of the devil tend to work. Like, if we push this forward into the late 20th century, you will find more and more stories of the devil being beaten, whether it's Charlie Daniels bands, Devil Went Down to Georgia, like they have the fiddle contest and Johnny wins over the devil, Um, or if it's something like Uh, The Devil's Advocate, the movie that came out in the 90s, which is weird, but kind of also wonderful for this discussion. Like, we have, once again, it's, you know, Keanu Reeves is this lawyer, and Al Pacino is the devil who's tempting him, but Keanu Reeves outsmarts him. And as much as the devil has another trick up his sleeve, like, at the end of the movie, it is emphasized that, like, as much as the devil is going to try, Keanu Reeves is still going to keep beating him because of his natural goodness and his, like, decent American values. Um, Or you could look at something like, you know, Futurama or Rick and Morty, which, again, depending on the way that this uh, class was presented, I often present in this class. um, Both the Rick and Morty episode on, you know, the, like, Needful Things parody and also the Futurama episodes that feature the robot devil, both of these characters are presented as losers that, in Rick and Morty's case science overcomes the devil like quite explicitly like Rick has his whole spiel about like i make my own stuff and you know i can detect evil and therefore figure out everything that he's doing and like the entire thing devolves into like Rick beating him as a businessman and then just literally physically beating him at the end of the of the episode or in you know Futurama the robot devil is presented as a moron like as much as he's got all these complicated machinations and schemes they almost always backfire like, every single one of them, uh, the devil is presented almost as sympathetic and pitiful by the end of the, the presentation of the character in later episodes. Like, the devil is not a threat in the 20th century. All of that, you know, cosmic superstition, that fear of evil is just thrown out the window. And there is a certain sort of hubris that accompanies this. The sense that anything that we do is warranted or justified or good... That evil is not something we are concerned about here in the 20th century. And this is even more obvious with the way that James Bond is portrayed, and the way that all of those Don Juan characteristics, again, sleeping with people, killing people, doing whatever you want, wherever you want to do it, all of these things are characteristics that James Bond embodies, that James Bond carries from the Don Juan formula, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And yet, the one thing missing from that transition is the comeuppance. James Bond accomplishes things, saves the world with his magic penis, rather than being punished for the way that he treats women and the way that he belittles them. Like, this is complicated because, you know, James Bond is a product of 1960s sexual politics, which, as much as 1960s sexual politics is its own sort of discussion, we should note that, like, this is second-wave feminism, In the wake of, like, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, and much of this second wave feminism is embodied in this kind of, like, female assertive control over her own sexuality, like, as much as James Bond girls, as they are frequently discussed... Um, The Bond girl is sort of like just subservient to James Bond, like she only ever exists for his pleasure and, and, you know, for him to conquer her and for us to get that kind of vicarious high, like, hey, if James Bond is sleeping with this beautiful woman, well, it feels like I'm sleeping with this beautiful woman as well. We should also emphasize that James Bond girls are typically liberated women. That they are assertive, that they talk to James Bond as an equal even though we know that James Bond will conquer them. They accept James Bond's advances, and they reciprocate. They are attracted to him as well. As much as they are objectified by the framing of the movie, they are not objects in the traditional sense. They are not obligated to sleep with James Bond, and if that situation ever arises, you can bet that James Bond is going to be a gentleman. James Bond only sleeps with the women who he spars with, who he can compete with, who he is sort of intellectually on par with. Um, this is complicated sometimes there are some pretty creepy examples especially in some of the Roger Moore era movies um, that are like some weirdly young Bond girls or stuff like that but again if you look at Pussy Galore as kind of the quintessential Bond girl which I think is fairly fair like as much as she's not perfect she is kind of appropriate for all the tropes. She is assertive, she is initially resistant to his advances, but she is also, importantly, in control of her own sexuality. She gives it freely, much as that scene in the hay does seem to, you know, muddle the waters a little bit and definitely seems a little rapey. It is emphasized that she could give it to James Bond whenever she wanted. And when she does give it up, it is largely with her consent, with her acceptance. Um... And this is the way that the James Bond girl is presented. Like, as much as Don Juan sleeps with women often by tricking them, or deceiving them, or, you know, causing them to think that he's going to marry them when he won't, or even, like, masquerading as another person in some cases. Things that more obviously shake out to be straight-up rape, especially, again, the way that Mozart portrays him. With James Bond, that line is always pretty carefully observed. As much as the James Bond girl as this sort of like throwaway character and sort of problematic sexual perspective is, is understood today, in second wave feminism this was in some form liberating. This was a woman in control of her sexuality, which again, having read and listened to all of the stuff that we've done in this class, should come to some degree as a breath of fresh air. Um, We should recognize that on the one hand, yes, this is just another form of objectification and in some ways an even creepier form of objectification. On the other hand, we should note that a woman in charge of her own sexuality, like asserting her own sexuality, is a far cry from what we saw with, say, Margareta and Goethe, who feels shame. At the prospect of falling in love with another man who has that scene at the well where she's like, maybe I shouldn't have shamed that other girl who did the same thing now that I understand what it feels like in this situation. The social obligations on her to behave and to only give her sexuality in marriage were palpable, were a major part of the plot in many earlier stories. Here, these women are in the workplace. They are frequently in control of their own sexuality. They are frequently, you know, every bit as powerful, intelligent, and capable as the men they are interacting with. This seems like a move forward. The trouble is, they are also represented as, again, being just pleasure for the main character, an indulgent power fantasy for the males in the audience, which, you know, undermines that liberated quality, that emancipation of women that we are seeing here. But what we should stress is that whatever we understand this to be, even if we recognize that there are no negative consequences to James Bond's sexuality, we should recognize that there are negative consequences to thinking that there are no negative consequences to one's sexuality. Like, James Bond getting away with stuff, saving the world with his magic boner, is weird when looked at from that outside perspective. We are saying that one can have sex with no consequences here. And whether or not like, obviously this is more controversial than you know, I'm making it out to be, like I'm saying, oh, look at look at how you know superficial or indulgent these movies are, like how Don Juan at least recognized that Don Juan was doing something terrible. Here we're seeing James Bond kind of isn't doing something terrible, and that is possibly terrible. Like, whether or not one, you you in particular think that, like, having this sort of free sexuality, a sexuality divorced from an emotional attachment, whether or not you think that that is, in fact, a thing, what I would stress is that with James Bond, that is not just a thing, that is always the thing. Like, James Bond falling in love is dangerous in this series it's only happened a couple of times again like from Russia with love kind of comes up in this one which is honestly frequently talked about as one of the best james bond movies and then we probably don't see the dynamic again until the likes of casino royale and daniel craig Because, again, part of the James Bond fantasy is he's got to sleep with lots of women, so if he's tied down to any one of them, if he does in fact have a romantic attachment, well, he doesn't work as an indulgent fantasy anymore. That's where I'm concerned. That's where I see the problem. Not necessarily in any individual conquest of James Bond's, each of which has the fig leaf of consent and equality and, you know, women's liberation to protect it, but rather the trope, the fact that we always expect James Bond to both get the girl and also not keep her, that's an issue. That's dangerous. And we should also emphasize that as much as James Bond is saving the world in all of these movies, again with these justifications and fig leaves to sort of protect him from scrutiny in question, we should note that even if we are going to excuse the sexuality altogether, we cannot excuse the murder. Like, James Bond kills people. That is kind of a feature of his character. It is very rare that you are going to watch a James Bond movie and not have a pretty high body count by the end most of which are killed at James Bond's hand. For that matter, James Bond is always pretty casual about it. Like, it's actually a thing that, like, Sean Connery was famous for the one-line zinger after he killed somebody. Like, when he is, you know, taking his bath and he gets jumped by one of Goldfinger's goons in Goldfinger and he, like, dumps him into the bathtub and throws the toaster in or whatever and, you know, he electrocutes the guy and it's horrible and shocking and then he finally says in that suave Sean Connery voice... Shocking. Positively shocking. Like, it's just silly. It's ridiculous. And on the one hand, yeah, like, it is ridiculous. He had a fight scene, and it, you know, it just proves how unflappable and, you know, how collected the guy is. And, you know, we love the zingers. Like, they are, in fact, entertaining. I'm not going to pretend that they're not. But at the same time, like, when I think about the way that violence is portrayed in movies, I remember even when I was a teenager, I was kind of self-conscious of the fact that, like, my mom loved James Bond movies, but then we went to see, like, Kill Bill Volume 1, and she could not take it. Like, my poor mother. Uh, she just, you know, all the blood, all the guts, all the gore, just well beyond her, her abilities and her sensibilities. And to some degree i I confronted her about it like i love my mom this wasn't a full-fledged argument by any extent of the imagination but i wanted to stress that like on the one hand yes quentin tarantino does take a certain sort of gluttonous love of just over-the-top movie violence which is its own discussion to be had but what i asked my mom was you know is it in fact more callous more indifferent to human life when James Bond kills a whole room full of bad guys and does so bloodlessly to keep that PG-13 rating, or when we actually see, we sort of dwell on the effects, the gruesome aspects of violence in something like an R-rated Michael Mann movie or in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Like, Tarantino is tough because he does, like, do it over the top and kind of sensationalizes it but when you feel the violence when you cringe when you see somebody get shot that i tend to think is more respectful more appropriate to the depiction of violence james bond mows through henchmen and you never give them a second thought they are not human beings they are just targets for him um and I remember, like, one of the movies that I think actually captured this pretty effectively in the in the 1990s, there were this whole series of, like, James Bond spoof movies uh, going into the 2000s called Austin Powers. Um, I don't know if we still remember the existence of these things besides, like, their fodder for meme material, but, like, the old Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, or the, the first Austin Powers movie, like, the first Austin Powers movie in particular has this great little kind of sidebar where, like, austin powers in truly james bond fashion has this like truly gruesome kill of this rando henchman like he runs over the guy with a steamroller and the guy is completely flat and it's very cartoony and silly um but apparently in like either the original cut or like some some form of the movie i know that there were outtakes on this one which is probably why i am familiar with it but there was definitely a version of this movie where like the after the the steamroller scene it cut to this rando henchman's wife and his kid at home and she gets the phone call that her husband has been flattened working for you know dr evil and you know as much as this is a ridiculous scene and it's played for laughs it does remind us like it is an effective satirical critique of james bond and the fact that james bond so callously so casually kills all of these people and we cheer to see him do it, and then just dismisses it with a one-line zinger or this amusing sort of like wry comment in, you know, his unflappable James Bond Scottish or British fashion. It's noteworthy that you know where all of these artists that we have seen depicting don juan do spend time examining the lives of the people who don juan has destroyed like think of mozart in particular how mozart's you know the second hour of the of the don giovanni opera is effectively devoted to following all of the characters whose lives who have been interrupted or disrupted or destroyed by Don Juan sleeping with various people, or interacting with various people, or manipulating various people. Mozart cares about these characters, wants us to care about these characters, wants us to realize the consequences of Don Giovanni's actions, and not just indulge in the fantasy. Whereas James Bond wants to avoid that, at all costs. James Bond, in order to keep that fantasy going to prevent us from slipping out of that fantasy, emphasizes with every kill, nothing. That this is a person with no consequence. That they are guilty and therefore deserving of being killed by James Bond in all of these scenes in all of these movies. Now this is not to say that the James Bond movies are just out and out bad things. Again, like, I get pretty critical of 20th century literature, especially in the context of the other stuff we've read, just because it is, in many cases, less thoughtful, but I should stress that this is made for a different audience. The question that I want to ask you, though, is what do we do with it? Like, I know people who have basically boycotted the entire James Bond franchise on the grounds of its trenchant immorality, and I can understand and appreciate that. But as I said at the end of the the 20th century lecture, late 20th century lecture, what I have is fewer sort of like pronouncements about late 20th century art as questions about late 20th century art james bond is a successful franchise largely because of these indulgent qualities the fact that we don't dwell on the effects of violence in james bond or the fact that we don't see what happens to the countries that james bond like mucks up mucks about with their governments when james bond initiates a coup we usually do not get to see the end of the coup the people whose lives are affected the homes that are destroyed the families that are torn apart We don't get to see that. And I find that as being endemic to the entire American attitude throughout the Cold War. This indifference to the effects of the actions of the CIA in various proxy wars. All this, to me, is connected. Can we justify it, though? Can we justify this kind of callous disregard for other nations by the fact that james bond is popular is in fact suggesting this pro-freedom pro-capitalism ideal can we see it as a work of art telling us about this history and therefore valuable in that sense there are many ways that we can justify our the existence of james bond here like again i've already justified his inclusion in my class he's incredibly relevant to the discussions we are having here But I want you to ask these questions, especially because, again, just as the racism thing is kind of close to home, so is James Bond's whole outlook, the whole Hollywood movie that we are approaching here. This is, in all likelihoods, an entertaining movie. You probably had more fun watching a James Bond movie for this assignment than you had reading or listening to or watching any of the other stuff we've had in this class, Because this sounds or feels or plays like any number of movies you might watch today for fun, for entertainment. What I want to ask is, what do we do with that? What does that say about the stuff that we are consuming now? Like, if we can, from the distance of, you know, say 60 or 50 years look back at james bond and say wow that was really messed up that we thought that we could go around you know doing this with impunity that we thought it was you know worth like worth informing all of these young impressionable audiences or worth like trying to propagate this idea of you know the superiority of capitalism and and the sort of like the power fantasy of identifying with this character who goes everywhere and does whatever he wants and there are no repercussions and there are no consequences and he sleeps with beautiful women and he shoots the bad guy and it all it's all for king and country and everything is made better at the end do we think this is something we want that we should continue to do are james bond's virtues enough to excuse the vices of the people who created him Do we, in fact, want people who are individually motivated, who are willing to, you know, do whatever they think is right rather than listen to the people who command them or to think about the consequences of their actions? Do we want more James Bonds in our world, more people who are making the hard calls, as some would describe it, or alternatively overlooking the complaints of others as we might see it today? Because at the end of the day, as much as, you know, James Bond is sort of his own thing and is very much sort of locked in the Cold War and here at the end of the Daniel Craig run, we might have some questions about what James Bond is going to look like in the future. I should stress that this conflict, this issue of sort of art and audience, art and morality, all those questions that we dealt with at the end of the late 20th century lecture, they do bleed over into the other franchises we're talking about today. Like, it's not terribly hard to draw a line between James Bond and the contemporary superhero movie. Like, if anything, much of the James Bond franchise has kind of been adapted to, weirdly enough, the Captain America franchise. Like, again, in Captain America, his whole arc leading up to Endgame was he was increasingly suspicious of the espionage organizations that sort of commanded him in Winter Soldier, dismantled them in Winter Soldier, and then went completely AWOL against the command of various organizations and powers in play in Civil War, asserting his own individual morality and the superiority of that morality over committee design documents, over the will of democracy, over the will of the people who used to command him. You know like James Bond often does. We accept this from Captain America because his morality is presented as utterly flawless. He's taking care of his friends. He is, in fact, distrustful of people who are right to be distrusted. And at the end of the day, we cheer when he picks up the hammer at the end of Endgame, returns to, you know, fighting the the good fight with Tony Stark and company. But can we ever truly say that he fell off, that he was, in fact, a rogue agent, that he did, in fact, do something bad? Captain America is presented to us as being unilaterally heroic in the same way that James Bond was presented in the 60s and 70s. We should have some questions about that here in 2024. We should wonder how many of Captain America's actions, or how many of John Wick's actions, or how many of, you know, like. I don't even know the character Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible. How many of his actions are, in fact, dubious? Whether or not the artists bothered to present them that way? We might want to demand for more from our movies at this point, to question the indulgent fantasies that we are frequently presented with. Whether it is something as apparently benign as Captain America saving his friend from forces who are out to destroy him, or something as dubious as liam neeson and taken you know going into strange countries and killing a bunch of people in order to save his daughter because family we have both movies today and both do present a certain kind of ideology an ideology we need to be able to interrogate and re-examine and i'm hoping Like, never mind all of the the sort of great books that we have studied this semester, which, you know, again, like, there's this widespread assumption that just by exposing you to them, you will become better people. I'm not sure I necessarily buy that. But by guiding you through them, I hope that you have learned to question and interrogate the same kind of works of literature and art that you encounter today. As much as I imagine it was difficult to get through Milton and Dante and Marlowe and, Moliere and Mozart and all of these various writers, I'm hoping that going forward, you're going to look at the stuff that we take for granted, your James Bond movies or your popular artists and singers, your, you know, great or unchallenged masterpieces of literature or, you know, whatever Sarah Maas is bringing out this next month, and you are able to look at that and say to yourself, what is this telling me? What is this trying to convince me to do? How does this book or movie or play or you know musical composer or singer or artist or whoever what are they trying to get me to think? What are they trying to get me to do? How do they want me to change? And if you you know are in fact this prepared for that if you are asking those questions then you can decide for yourself. What you want to do with that information. Whether you want to trust this artist or to distrust them. Whether you want to, you know, reject the moral principles on which a franchise is based because it is out of sync with what you think it should say and what it should do. These are complicated questions. They are not difficult things to do. This is part of the reason why the internet blows up every time some controversial movie comes out and all these people have all these different opinions. What I'm hoping is that you will be better informed. That you will be able to make a more informed opinion. One not motivated by purely emotion, but one motivated by intellectualism by a knowledge of the history of these works of art, by an awareness of how the techniques in these various art forms can be used to present their points. I hope you go in informed, in short, and protected. James Bond is kind of weird and dangerous when you really get to thinking about it, for a wide variety of reasons, even though it is a fixture of the popular consciousness, even though his movies are beloved by many, even though he gets new installments every couple of years or so. I want you to be aware of this, that it is not just entertainment, that the profit motive isn't necessarily justification enough for continuing to produce these things, that oftentimes the morality of these franchises is in fact dubious or outmoded or flat-out wrong, gluttonous and indulgent in many cases. Keep that in mind as we go forward. And by we, in this case, I mean not so much this class, but this world. You are now out there a responsible artist, a responsible reader, a responsible thinker. You now have to be responsible for your decisions as to what you consume, who you give money to, all of these things. It's tough sometimes. A lot of the things we like will not stand up to scrutiny if you just... Scrutinize them even a little bit. So, hooray for that, I guess. I hope that you do the responsible thing here. I hope that you take this stuff into consideration. I hope you learn to respect the art that is going into these things. And I hope you learn to disrespect the people who take advantage of that. So, I hope that that is a fitting conclusion of the class. I hope you've enjoyed everything that we've talked about. And I hope that, again, you take this stuff seriously as we go forward. Enjoy whatever remains of the semester. I hope you you know do well in the final exam. Do well with your papers, whatever assignments are left to you. And I hope you enjoy your summer, if that's where we end up after this. Good luck to you, whatever that ends up looking like. Hi, everyone. This is Professor Kozlowski. I hope you enjoyed our lecture. Um, I just wanted to say at the end of this discussion, thank you for listening, um, but this is a pretty small operation I've got here and I have achieved only limited success online, um, and so I have to ask if you liked this lecture, share it around. Uh, talk to some people who might be interested in it, pass it along to, you know, family, friends, whoever you think might like this discussion and maybe encourage them to work on whatever reading project we're doing together. Um, If you want to do more as far as contributing and and helping this project along, like I am, again, just totally self-funded. I'm not making a whole lot of money doing this stuff. Um, So consider visiting my my website, ProfessorKozlowski.wordpress.com. That's where you will find links to all of the other projects that I have engaged in online in the last few years. Um, and you should be able to connect to any other of the topics that I've discussed in case any of those interest you. Um, but also definitely consider contributing to the Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, that's really the only actual income I make on these since I don't do advertising or anything like that. Um, so any amount of money that you can contribute, even if it's only a dollar a month, is, is a huge deal for me. Um, Plus, if you do contribute to the Patreon, you get to vote on topics like the one we're probably talking about now. Um, So feel free to contribute over there. It would go a long way towards making this a more permanent fixture of my life and a a bigger part of the time I get to spend studying and researching and talking about the stuff that I love. Um, Thanks for all of your consideration. Again, like, share, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Um, And I'll talk to you again soon.